This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Frenemies. Cursed Airship Metal. The Notre Dame Sarcophagus. And Ken's Tarot Collection. Ken, do you know anything about kitties? I might. But do you know about magical kitties? I know everything. Everything about Magical Kitties Save the Day, a new RPG for gamers of all ages. But, you know, young ones in particular. A perfect intro to the hobby. You mean perfect? I do not. Like the title says, you're Magical Kitties. Every Magical Kitty has a human. Every human has a problem. In Magical Kitties Save the Day, you use your magical powers to solve problems and... Save the day! You all live in a hometown that's filled with foes like witches, aliens, and hyper-intelligent raccoons. They make human problems worse, so the kitties go on adventures to stop them and help the humans. The super simple but elegant rule system puts the emphasis on storytelling and puts the dice in the players' hands, not the GM's. And it supports a setting and characters that players are familiar with and love from the start. When you open the box for Magical Kitties Save the Day, sitting right on top is a copy of Magical Kitties and the Big Adventure. A play graphic novel adventure. Within moments of opening it, kiddos can create their magical kitty and go on an amazing adventure that also teaches them how to play the game. Run Magical Kitty Save the Day for kids as young as six years old. And for everyone else who loves kitties. A great game for kids to start running on their own with plenty of tools and guidance for first-time GM. If you've been looking for a way to introduce your friends and family to role-playing games, Magical Kitty Save the Day is the perfect game to do it. Do you mean perfect? I also do not. Pick up your copy at atlas-games.com. You are cute. You are cunning. You are fierce. You are magical kitties, and it's time to save the day. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us into the gaming hut. And in the gaming hut, we are welcoming... An all-request episode, beginning with a request by Ryan McClelland, beloved Patreon backer, who requests advice, which is good because that's the kind of thing we do, but specifically advice for convincing players to adopt captured former adversaries into allies or frenemies. Robin, I didn't know players needed advice. I thought they would do that at the drop of a hat just to annoy me, the GM. <laughs> well, it's convincing. Right. So the, the whole villain who does a, a halo turn and becomes mm. a good guy, or more often a the uncertain turn. ally, yeah. is a staple of uh, genre material, a well that has often gone to, as a mm -hmm. matter of fact. And the secret for making that work, and I think we should expand this beyond just captured enemies right, to yeah. just enemies in, in general, because, you, mm -hmm. don't, you know, you didn't need to capture Spike first or, no. you know, sometimes there's the scene where you go to the prison and you convince them to work for you. That's another trope. But regardless of, you know, what your frenemy is doing when you need to frenemyize them, the secret from the GM's point of view is to make that character extremely charming, yeah. <laughs> not the character that you... Uh, love to hate, but the character that you hate to love mm. so that they kind of like him, even though he's a weasel. Because if you look at your spikes or your Baron Zemos or the long list 
of uh, characters that uh, have done that in uh, movies and TV and fiction and comics. They're cool, fun characters that the audience wants to spend more time with and that the audience wants to see engaged in banter and byplay with the heroes. And that's the mechanism that allows that to happen. Sometimes there's even smooching involved. It could be. If, if you've got a smooching game in which the smooching can cross barriers from a named NPC to player character, that is one good way to frenemyize the situation, though right. that's sort of a different segment, I would say. Yeah, that will seldom, in fact, happen in role-playing. There's right. hardly any kissing in role-playing. Yeah. So, so that's the thing. It's to, because otherwise, if the, if the players really hate that character or think that they're going to regret letting them live instead of killing them when they get the chance, or are just kind of annoyed by them, somebody in the group often loose canning player who we spoke about previously is just going to go, I shoot him, I shoot him in the head. And that's a, a challenge that you have in role playing that you, you know, don't have in a TV show because you don't have control over whether all of the uh, protagonists decide to shoot the character in the head or not. Yeah. In my experience, often, if you're doing a fun voice that can go a long way to making the character charming, just because the players enjoy hearing the fun voice. Make them from Maine. Make them from Maine. That's often the case. Although they never really frenemized any of those, any of those mosh guys, but they did like hearing them. And I think if one of them had wanted to be let out as an ally, that might have happened. Um, certainly, another way is if you set up the initial moment of your meeting to be a thing that they're not a million percent they're happy with, the bad guy trying to stop them begins sympathetic. So, for example, in my current Supers game, the players were, you know, they're a team of American superheroes. They're probably working for the CIA, but maybe they don't know it yet. They're sent to Vietnam. They're meant to just be on a stand with uh, President Diem, and he's going to use the uh, big propaganda value of a great American hero like Pyroman to, you know, face down his domestic political enemies. And they're sort of iffy about that. They're not you know, they're not idiots. They know that DM is not a good guy per se, but there they are. And sure enough, a, a villain, the green arrow of Vietnam, as I have created him, No Than, uh, named for the magic golden crossbow given by the gods to Vietnamese freedom fighters in the Middle Ages, decides to take down DM. And so they have to stop his assassination of DM. But the players were already not a million percent happy with DM pulling propaganda on them. They historically know that DM is, you know, not a beautiful, pristine moral character. So they're iffy about protecting him from being shot in the head. And then finally, it's Green Arrow. So it's a character that they already sort of know and like, even though he's Vietnamese Green Arrow. He's not real Green Arrow, but he's, you know, Robin Hooding it up and, you know, slinking in and out and being really cool. And so there's a lot of very positive energy that they had for Nothan. And then when Nothan shows up again, because he perceives them as being on the side of the oppressors, they recruited him to go against the North Vietnamese for them on a different mission. And of course, Nothan also doesn't like the communists any more than he likes DM. So they join up and now they're sort of frenemies in exactly that way that, you know, if he thinks they're, you know, working for the government, he goes after them. But if they can convince him that they have something in common, he's their ally. So they've once more allied with him in an attempt to take down the, the crime court in uh, the rung sat. So he's, he's now our spike. He's, he's showing up every time they're in Vietnam and probably gets to add his, his uh, throw weight into the, into the mix. And I think that that sort of gives an example. If, you know, the, 
the circumstances you meet is not immediate blood to the knife, knife to the death warfare that opens player eyes to, is this guy someone we can suborn, co-opt, etc. And also my players enjoy throwing me for a loop. And so they're always on the lookout for how to do that. And, and sometimes they do it with characters that I did not intend to be cool frenemy types. They're just really dangerous and evil. And so they're like, yeah, we want to join up with the dangerous guy so that he won't smash us, which has happened in my past and will happen again because that's the way the world works. Right. So a thing I want to underline about what you said is that their goals often are not directly opposed to the player characters, but they are, uh, you know, sort of half of the Venn diagram is opposed and half is unopposed. So they're they kind of a, have orthogonal goals. Right. Another thing that I use because I love the frenemy character is to make them impossibly powerful so that the frenemy doesn't want to kill them. He, he kind of likes them, uh, even though, even when their goals are opposed. So it's like, I'm not, I'm going to try not to kill you if you don't make me. And so in addition to being charming though, that it's just like, yeah, I could, I could kill you with my eyelash, but I don't want to. And so that reminds them, even the character who's like, I shoot him in the head. It's like, no, don't, don't try to shoot him in the head because that will just go poorly for you and, you know, possibly mess up your new cool suit. So if you want to keep a character around, regardless of whether they're a frenemy, make sure that the incentives for keeping them around are, are greater than the, than the disincentives. That's just, you know, basic NPC preservation and uh, maintenance. Another thing I, I think is to not have the players think, oh no, the GM is trying to mislead us, but we know that he's going to betray us in the end and we're just being, you know, tricked. Instead, have the character go, yeah, I'll eventually betray you when it's in my interest. Of course I will. It's not betraying if I say right up front. It's just, I will live up to expectations. Let, let me put it that way. Yeah. And so once that's on the table as a, uh, you know, the gym is not trying to surprise you. The surprise will be if he never acts against your interests. They're, again, I think, less resentful of that, that they uh, accept it more and go, yeah, yeah, eventually, you know, he's going to try to escape or, you know, she's going to uh, try and take the jewel from us and we be better get ready for that when the time comes. But until then, you know, we're cooperating and, and you know, we'll, we'll be ahead of that then. But until then, there's there's no point shooting him in the head because we know we need him to get across the bridge of doom or whatever it is that you uh, need that character for. So be upfront about the fact that the enemy is still in the word frenemy. Yeah. I think I want to put a pin in your notion of making your frenemy Q because just by saying that I've demonstrated everything that can go wrong with that idea, but the notion of the sudden and inevitable betrayal being inevitable, I think, says a lot. Another possibility is that if you've run a bunch of shadowy Mr. Johnsons and they haven't all betrayed the characters, often the characters don't assume that every shadowy Mr. Johnson they meet will betray them. And it then becomes a matter of, you know, they can actively find out if a betrayal is happening. They can be rewarded for doing investigation. And so they meet a shadowy Mr. Johnson he gives them a mission or an opportunity, maybe volunteers to, to help out on the, on the heist, whatever it is. They investigate and they discover, oh, if this happens, he will probably betray you. Then you give the key really into the player's hands. It's like, oh, if we, you know, threaten the king vampire, this guy will have to turn on us because we know that he does stuff for the king vampire. But if we only threaten the mummies, he'll be fine. He'll be our buddy. And that then 
puts the key of sudden inevitable betrayal really into the player's hands. Like, are we going to then use this guy, this shadowy Mr. Johnson, to get at the king vampire? Are we going to be his shadowy Mr. Johnsons? And I think once you establish the possibility of that kind of gameplay and that kind of dimensionality, you open up the sort of the moral gray space for a lot of different possible activity, including valued frenemyship and uh, a frenemyship that is based on solid understanding of each other's goals and methods. And, you know, sometimes in a super game, they will literally state their goals and methods. I'm fighting for the poor peasants of South Vietnam. And it's like, great, good for you. We will attempt to not hamper the poor peasants of South Vietnam. That said, we got other stuff we're doing. And then sometimes, again, you investigate and you find out what's this guy up to. And once you have that power, that I feel like gives the players more permission to utilize those NPCs as something other than target practice. Right. And to return to your pin, you absolutely don't want to have the frenemy be Q. You don't want them to be literally all powerful. You just want them to be too tough to mess with, that it's a bad business to try and shoot that character in the head and we'll, and we'll blow back on you because yes, nothing <laughs> is more annoying than, <laughs> than Q than Q or anything like Q. And you do want to avoid literally making them a impo- It's just, uh, this is a bad idea. Even for me, that's, that's, I think what you're uh, really going there for. Speaking of betrayal though, it is a betrayal of the concept of this podcast. If we go on for more than about 15 minutes per segment. So it's time for us to Head on out and see what segment lays on the other side of this beautiful, polished, handcrafted commercial. Dracula is not a novel. We know this. It's the after-action report of a failed British intelligence attempt... To recruit a vampire, yeah, yeah, we've been through all this. And the Dracula dossier director's handbook has more secrets, more dangers, more mysteries... For players and directors to explore together, we did a year's worth of ads about it. But it doesn't have Varna. It doesn't have the ring of Dracula either, or 13th age-style icons, or bibliomancy. Or a hand of glory, or red mercury, or hard-won advice and actual play reports. If only someone could gather up all that material that you and Gareth wrote after the fact. Someone has. You made Gar do it, didn't you? We've assembled. Gar has assembled. The cuttings from the dossier have been assembled into a 50-page PDF. Available free with a special offer from the Pelgrane store. Just buy a print copy of the Director's Handbook standalone. Or the Dracula Dossier Core Bundle, the Director's Handbook and Dracula Unredacted in print. Or the Dracula Dossier Starter Kit Bundle, the Knight's Black Agent's Core Book, the Director's Handbook, and Dracula Unredacted in print. Get 25% off any of those print bundles, plus the PDF versions and the cuttings from the Dossier PDF entirely free with the code VAMP2021. And don't worry, original Kickstarter backers, the Cuttings PDF will mystically appear in your Pelgrane store bookshelves without further expenditure. Do nothing, Kickstarter backers. All others use code VAMP2021 for plenty of savings and lots of cuttings. It's time once more to don our old-timey gear, and this time... I think we got some goggles, we got some leather helmets, perhaps some uh, aviation leathers, because we're going all the way back into history to the 30s, the 20s and 30s, at the behest of beloved Patrick Backer, Derek Heimforth, who says, 
British airship R-101 crashed on its maiden voyage in 1930, killing 48 people. After the crash, much of the metal used in the structure was sold to the Zeppelin Company in Germany, who used it in the construction of the Hindenburg, which crashed in 1937 and killed 36 people. Who placed a fell curse upon all of that duralumin, and what was their ultimate aim in causing these two great airship disasters? And I guess, as is our wont, uh, we will get to the straight history first and then uh, begin to loop it up. So, Ken, what is duralumin? All right. Duralumin is an alloy of uh, 93% aluminum, 4% copper, 1.5% magnesium, and less than 1% manganese, plus traces of iron, silicon, zinc, titanium, and chromium. It was developed in 1903 by a metallurgist named Alfred Vilm, who worked at a... Uh, an institute called NUTS, N-U-T-Z, which is fun, but I don't think it's immediately relevant. It's interesting that Alfred Vilm, after having developed the material that makes Zeppelins possible, then retired from metallurgy at age 50 in 1919 to become a farmer. And that that struck me as, as interesting. And he dies in August of 1937, so just a little bit after the Hindenburg crashes. So maybe Vilm is one of our doors into answering the mysterious question. But the R-101 famously was the socialist airship, as opposed to the capitalist airship, the R-100, which was designed by everyone's buddy Neville Shute Norway. R-101 was designed by a different bunch of British guys. It used steel as its main structural material, not the much lighter duralumin. That's probably because duralumin rusts. It corrodes. The copper makes it very corrodible. And so when you build a, a shed large enough to hold the R-101, it has its own weather patterns. And sure enough, they would develop mist and uh, rain in the shed, and it would rust out the duralumin that they did use as cross braces on the steel frame. But the, the ultimate problem with the R-101 is that it was too heavy. Uh, and because it was too heavy, they took out a lot of the cross braces, which was not necessarily a great idea, and they tried to jam in an extra gas bag, but that meant the gas bags rubbed up against the metal and put little holes in the gas bags. Another bad problem. But they figured, well, it's all good. Nothing can possibly go wrong. They build it at uh, Cardington in Bedfordshire in this pre-mentioned giant hut. They build it in spring of 1929. They fly it for its maiden flight. It had four little test flights, but this was the flight that was going to go on from uh, London to Karachi. And it was going to be the first leg in the airship scheme, the Imperial Airship Scheme, which may be the best named thing in the world that was going to knit the British Empire together with airships. But sadly... Uh, it was, as I mentioned, far too heavy, and when it ran into a cross breeze over a hill in Beauvais, France, it knocked the nose of the of the Zeppelin, or the, or the airship, rather, down into the ground, and sure enough, once it's touched down, the frame bends because it doesn't have enough metal in it. They've been pulling it out to make it lighter, and once it bends, a piece of the super hot engine touches the hydrogen and boom, off you go. And as Derek reminds us, 48 people died, including all the designers of the R-101 and Lord Thompson, the Minister for Air, who came up with the Imperial Airship Scheme in the first place. So, kind of hard cheese for the rest of the people, but 
it's it's seldom that a, a a great crash actually kills the people whose fault it is. So I guess that's nice. The wreckage stays there uh, in the field in France. Bits of it are carried away by salvagers or scavengers. In 1931, the Zeppelin company buys five metric tons of the uh, Duralumin from the wreckage. And they pass over the steel because they know that steel is too heavy for a Zeppelin. What the heck? They cart it off. We don't know. There is no actual dotted line evidence that says this Duralumin goes into the Hindenburg as opposed to the Hindenburg's sister ships. But, you know. Yeah, but and if we're talking curses, sympathetic yeah. magic is right. perfectly sufficient. Draw it to the Zeppelin, to the Hindenburg. So they build it into the Hindenburg. Hindenburg is constructed at Friedrichshafen in Germany. It officially starts in fall of 1931. So maybe once they get that Duralumin there, they're, they're banging it into shape. It really starts being built in March of 32. Eventually, after the Nazi party puts a bunch of money into the Hindenburg company, the Zeppelin company, it's finished. And it's fine. It's a great Zeppelin. It is a dandy Zeppelin. It crosses the Atlantic 36 times before the 1937 North American flying season begins. And it's not its maiden voyage, but it's the first North American trip in 1937 that goes so dramatically wrong. And there are a million theories as to what took out the Hindenburg. I think we did uh, something on the Hindenburg, didn't we, Robin? On what crashed it? I, I no longer recall at this point. Who can as say? We approach... Our uh, 10th anniversary. Right. But anyway, it was probably a fire because once more, the Hindenburg full of hydrogen, not of helium. No one has learned this lesson. And it crashes on May 6th, blows up, falls into Lakehurst. Again, some of the Duralumin is scavenged. You can see eBay will sell you like a piece of the Duralumin from the Hindenburg or it will sell you like a, a coffee table with Duralumin legs that was made by a funster in 1937. Most of it was shipped back to Germany. Germany said, that's our Duralumin. We're not going to leave it in New Jersey to be uh, ransacked by rubes. They ship it back to Germany where they build airframes for Luftwaffe fighter jets with it. And that means that probably some of it at least crashed back into England. So the cycle was completed. Got reshot down a, a third time, we can assume. Reshot down once more. So this is the late 20s and, and then well into the 30s. So this is Cthulhu times. So mm -hmm. I think we're going to look at what sort of mythos entity could want to uh, swat Zeppelins and other airships from the uh, sky. And so it seems to me, you know, the mythos god of the air, Ithaqua, is the one who's going to want to swat airships out of the air. But but then that brings us to the, the question of the of the metal, right? He wouldn't need to arrange to have this accursed rusty metal that goes from plane to airship to airship and uh, continue to get uh, knocked out of the sky. He would just, you know, use his wind power to do that. Mm -hmm. So I don't know who, who would go to the, you know, the, the effort to create a cursed metal. Is there like a, seems like a Nyarlathotep is sort of the, the techie uh, mythos entity. So maybe he would do it. Or, or is there a God who uh, enjoys uh, messing around with, uh, with metal and adding some sort of occult, horror to a formulation of a Duralumin? I mean, here's a couple of possibilities. The first possibility, I think, I mean, Cardington is just over the border from Wales. It's in the Severn Valley, roughly speaking. I feel like you could maybe look at Deoloth, the god of sort of infrageometry. The, the, he, well, you build a pattern of Deoloth and you perceive Deoloth and then you go mad. I feel like all those cross struts and braces and spheres and cuboids that might have been that the R101 guys in their desperation to save weight 
put a little hypergeometry into their duralumin. And we're like, if we just do this and, and, and run these pieces of duralumin together in a, in a specific kind of a elder sine transverse way, uh, we can, you know, not have to brace that whole, uh, wing of the gas bag. And of course, that awakens Daloth's attention and that puts a curse on all their duralumin by contagion. The other possibility, if you'll note, who, who takes it in the ear on this? It's the British first and then the Germans. Well, if something has slapped the British and the Germans, my theory is look at the French, see what they're up to. And sure enough, Robin, we have an alchemist named Fulcanelli, who I believe you remember from the old Dreamhounds days, but he's boodling around in Paris and then mysteriously disappears right around 1929. And we don't know what happened to Fulcanelli after he taught a couple of guys to make gold. And he just sort of vanished and he wrote a couple of books and disappeared. And we don't know. So you got a French alchemist. He vanishes in 1929, right as they're building the R101. He stays vanished. And sure enough, I think that this is Fulcanelli. I think this is Fulcanelli figured out the sacred alloy of Duralumin that he was able to influence magically, probably either swapped it out in Bedfordshire or used one of his cultist alchemist buddies to do it because he's very wired into the occult, the underground and whatnot. And that's what happens. Fulcanelli is the guy and he cursed the Duralumin. And then after the British airship program literally blew up, he said, well, that was easier than I thought. How can I destroy Germany's airship program and use the magic of sympathy, as you, as we suggested, to lure the Zeppelin people to buy the Duralumin? Remember, it took them years to think, oh, there's this giant pile of Duralumin right there in Beauvais, France. We could buy it. But sure enough, Fulcanelli's machinations get them to do it. And then, obviously, uh, after having destroyed the Zeppelin, by now, the Nazis have come to power. Fulcanelli is many things, but he's not a Nazi. Says, well, I'm just going to keep the curse on. And then when they build it into, into, you know, uh, Falk Wolfs and Messerschmitts, I'll have the dandiest time when they fall out of the sky over uh, Britain or the North Sea or France or wherever. And right. I feel like Fulcanelli, you know, sort of rubs his hands together and says, boom, mission accomplished, mission accomplished or whatever. Right. Because we all know that base metals do not want to be turned into gold. That's why we call they them do base not. metals. Mm -hmm. And it may just be that if you're in the uh, making gold from nothing business, that what you need is a lot of blood sacrifice. So put a curse on some metal and then have it continue to cause air disasters and kill people again and again and again. That's the magical gift that keeps on giving, right? Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, you know, he may not, not have even expected the Germans to, to buy that and put it in the Hindenburg and he must be going, oh, that's gone back and forth a lot of times without crashing. Is my curse rang off? Is, oh, wait, look, I've got all this more magical energy. So you might uh, be able to trace this by finding a big influx of gold seemingly from nowhere in 1937. Although who would be looking into this at that point is, is a, a question. So I guess that brings us to how do Trail of Cthulhu investigators, what's the instigating incident that drives them to figure out what's going on? Or is this just sort of a background detail as they are looking into some other instance of uh, cursed metal and they look back in the records and say, oh yeah, this is possible. Well, I think the super fun thing is if the player characters are involved from the wreck of the R101, they're brought on, the British government pays them to look into it, or they're, you know, made curious by the strange reports of the wind pattern blowing up over Beauvais for no reason. They, they have a lot of issues of some sort. They look into the 
R101, and then they discover that it was the Duralumin that did it, and by the time they've discovered it, it's built into the Hindenburg, and they have to get onto the Hindenburg, and the first bunch of tickets they can buy is for that May 1937 flight to New Jersey, so, oh, we're on the Hindenburg, oh, we're on the Hindenburg, and maybe they've ridden it back and forth in 1936 with no incident, they're, oh, okay, Hindenburg is fine, but we, you know, narrowed it down, or we figured out, you know, who it wasn't, and then... Because the players know if the GM introduces weird going back and forth on the Hindenburg, yeah, you know, they know that, well, we're, we're not getting on it in 1937, I don't know why we know that, and mm-hmm. then, of course, there has to be some sort of time ripple or yep. contrivance. Well, there's to- a, there, there was an old Call of Cthulhu scenario set on the Hindenburg on that night. I think it was from Theater of the Mind Enterprises. It wasn't from Chaosium. But it, you should, it, it should be diggable out and usable. And it's one of those, you know, sort of um, death on the Nile type situations where there's a bunch of weirdos on the Zeppelin and you have to figure out which ones are the mythos weirdos. And maybe, you know, it's only... And because most of the people on the Hindenburg survived the crash, the player characters might be among them. It's only they, then they'll roll well. It's I'm only sure then they, that they sure realize they that oh, this is that jerk Fulcanelli doing it, or Daleoth, and so we have to, you know, uncover the the real threat back in France or Wales and uh, undo it for good. And that's I I I feel like if you have an opportunity to lure the players onto the Hindenburg, you should take it. That's just a thought, right? And I think there's also a, a fun you know wartime scenario where you're arranging to get the, the curse medal to the, to the Luftwaffe so that uh, that's a, a victory for you. So you could be, you know, a cult aware saboteurs trying to get cursed materials into the enemy munitions yeah. uh, industry. Yeah. You're shadowing Mr. Johnson. In that case is Fulcanelli. He appears to you Centromain style and says, Hey guys, you hate Nazis. I know where there's some cursed Duralumin that you could sneak into the Folkwolf plant. Let's do that. And, that could be great fun, or you could play members of Pisces, whose job is to get to the crash sites of the cursed ME-109s and folk and uh, Folkwolves and whatever, and get the cursed Duralumin and bury it in a, a, a coal mine somewhere so no one tries to build RAF planes out of it. You know, end the curse or assemble enough Daleoff energy to build the counter lattice and send him back to the uh, nether dimension that he normally stays in. Right. Well, I think at this point it's time for us to get into a perfectly safe airship and fly it over this commercial and see what other segment and or hut lies on the other side. The Best of Askfageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic choose-your-adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English... That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sage 
Rush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Astfageln on drive through Keep the clay sarcophagus of Podcast Doom safely sealed by pitching in with such beloved Patreon backers as... Oli Toivonen. Tom Powell. Tony Camp. Alex Johnston. And Corey Welch. The clatter of the teletype, the shriek of the tannoy, tells us that once more we have a hut that has been ripped from the headlines. Specifically, beloved Patreon backer Matthew Preston has ripped out the headline from, among other papers, The Guardian, to ask us just who or what is buried under Notre Dame Cathedral. Buried at the bottom of this already interesting article, article in The Guardian from April 14th, on newly discovered tombs under the floor of Notre Dame in Paris, is the information that the body in the lead-lined sarcophagus had been buried with plant remains under their head. What could possibly have been going on in the most gothic of European cathedrals? And well put, Matthew Preston. And Robin, I believe that you have done the deep dive under Notre Dame. Right. And, and I feel like I, I really accomplished something when this story dropped because I was able to tweet it at everybody else before they tweeted before it at they me. Before they tweeted it back. So one, for once in our lives, we send people things. We, we send people things. So because of the, the fire at Notre Dame, there's an effort to uh, reconstruct everything. And to reconstruct the spire, they need to put up a scaffold. And put up a scaffold, they needed to check this area of flooring. And so they sent in the preventative archaeologist, which is a great phrase, which it sounds like something the player characters would do until you realize that, oh, it's your job is to basically fix or mediate things before they're covered up by other construction. And often you're working under time pressure, but the, they really found some exciting stuff just inches under the floorboards. And they found this around some heating pipes that were installed under the floor in the 19th century. And so, spoiler, 19th century obviously means 1895, yep. the uh, year that uh, the Yellow King Paris sequence is, is set. So that implies that somebody had a chance to slip something in there. And, and although it's supposedly from like the 13th century, including the sarcophagus, which is thought to be from the 14th century, uh, and they found like statues and sculptures and tombs and bits of an original rude screen. But the uh, very exciting thing, of course, is the lead-lined sarcophagus. And the existence of plant remains uh, would suggest, I don't know, possibly could be garlic. If it's garlic, I think we have some idea of who the player characters sealed in there in 1895 and are now their contemporary descendants or counterparts or entangled link characters from the contemporary world are looking at this going, oh, there's a sarcophagus that's just been open from 1895. We've had a lot of weird things about 1895. What's going on here? And so it turns out to be Wolfsbane. I guess that tells us it's a werewolf. So the, the, the meta answer, of course, is that it's the big bad character that the Paris player characters arrange to have buried and then gets dug up again so that their contemporary counterparts, and this is normal now, then have to have to fight them. And so that's a a great reveal. And so the way to set that up is to have an adventure where the, the way to get rid of this character for good is to put them in the lead lined coffin. And so this brings us to speculate on who exactly that big bad uh, could possibly be. And so we should note, I guess, before we get there though, that there will be no attempt on the part of these preventative archeologists to identify 
who the body is that they found in the sarcophagus. They are, you know, very contemporary archaeologists. So it's like, these are human remains. They must be treated with respect. It's in the old days, of course, human remains were something we would investigate. But now, now we don't do that anymore. We've decided that it's unethical. In other words, they escaped. Yeah, right. Whether it was a him or a her or a what or a they, whatever it was, escaped. And that's what they, they're saying. Basically, you, you put a little hole in the coffin to stick your endoscopic camera in. And you know what can escape through a hole in the coffin? Mist. Mist can escape. Not to fun ruin, Robin, but if anyone is just a tiny bit concerned with the actual time that this these pipes were laid, it is probably between 1845 and 1870, because that is when Violette Leduc is restoring the spire and building it and basically doing exactly what these guys are doing right now. So 1895, obviously... You know, all that new construction will be new. There's going to be an old verger who knows how to find the lead-lined coffin that Violette Leduc dug up. But maybe that's where the vampire who's been pestering you in your Paris adventures came from. Maybe that's where Audemars was lying, was underneath uh, Notre Dame, and she was let out by Violette Leduc in 1870, and then stayed escaped during all the uh, brouhaha of the Franco-Prussian War. And that's, you know, uh, and she's been, you know, out there getting it done and trying to bring uh, Carcosan energy back so she can stay alive because she realizes right. that's the only way she lives is if she's a, you know, a Carcosan vampire. Right. Now, of course, we're not committed to uh, Odoma being the uh, person in the uh, coffin. We are so, not. We're just as respectful as a French archaeologist, I would yeah. say. So if we want to look to famous deaths in 1895, Louis Pasteur died that year. So it could be that the player characters had to put him in a uh, lead-lined coffin. Now, he's a a heroic figure, and uh, um, I'm sure not a monster of any kind, so there would be some other... But he's probably full of some sort of horrible disease that he isolated bravely as a hero. Yes, yes, and and, uh, obviously a disease of uh, Carcosan origin, and, Mm -hmm. and, you know, as sort of the pioneer of vaccination, it makes sense that his rest would be disturbed. You know, they had to put him in there to make sure that the concept of vaccination... Uh, which some find counterintuitive, remains accepted and widespread. And then, you know, this is the perfect year for, you know, anti-vaxxers to be empowered by uh, the magic being disturbed by the sarcophagus being moved. But, you know, Pasteur, that's the obvious choice. I would actually tend to look at Etienne Trouvelot, an astronomer and amateur moth enthusiast. He died in 1895 as well. He was known chiefly for fomenting an ecological disaster involving a a critter that we've identified as a likely patron animal of Carcosa, the moth. He imported the spongy moth to North America. This is in the 1860s. And his idea was this could somehow be engineered into a moth that produces silk. It doesn't, didn't work. But what it does like to do is eat hardwood trees. And so it was released into the wild and, and became a big imported species. And, uh, and and so that seems like bad juju. And and, and he was sort of the, the crazed scientist who went to the authorities and said, I've accidentally released these moths that I shouldn't have brought to America. We've got to do something about this. And the authorities go, moths, this is no threat. And uh, so that was a, a, a problem there. And he then went on to become an astronomer. He was interested in astronomy got interested in moths, this bummed him out, and then he went into astronomy. In fact, his 
big moth accident was later used against him by his astronomical rivals to keep him out of uh, a position. You hate to see it. Yeah. Uh, but at any rate, he undoubtedly saw the Hyades or Aldebaran through uh, his telescope. And that's how he was, you know, the full power of Carcosa, which had already manipulated through the moths, then uh, turns him into a full-on supervillain. And the, then the player characters have to deal with him or uh, put him in a lead-lined uh, coffin. And Ken, I think you have a, another candidate for someone who might have been uh, placed in the coffin that year. Yeah, I have a couple of painters who die in uh, 1895. One is Berta Morizot, who is one of the Impressionists. Uh, she was sort of the most prominent of the female Impressionists. And uh, she died and is theoretically buried in a cemetery in Paris. But actually, you know, if she's circling around painting circles... She might be, you know, uh, woke to Carcosan energies as painters and artists are. Even more uh, chambers adjacent painter, although less famous or gifted than uh, Morisot, is a fellow named Emile Mounier, who was an academy painter, Beaux Arts, relatively conventional, but he was a good friend of Beaujolais, who of course taught at the Beaux-Arts and the Julian, and therefore probably knew Chambers. The other reason that his death is a little bit suspicious is that he dies relatively young, at the age of 55, and we don't even know. He's fairly obscure. We don't know specifically where he's uh, buried, but maybe it's in Paris somewhere. And so that's a, a guy that, you know, might have known too much about Carcosa and been tainted or twisted by it. And so, yes... Your 1895 player characters do have to figure out what to do with uh, Emile Mounier, that guy who knew too much and died suddenly in a way that they would rather not die also. Right. The lead lining, uh, in fact, may be the, the core clue here. Why would you make sure the, the sarcophagus was lead lined? Well, perhaps the figure that has now escaped from the sarcophagus is Sir Um, Le Superman, the uh, uh, being uh, from the planet Krypton, which uh, we all know is uh, close to Carcosa and is empowered by the uh, red energy of its uh, sun. The, the red energy is the energy of uh, Camilla. Of the, she's the red princess, uh, as we will later discover in an upcoming project. And his, you know, great uh, physical strength and his eye beams and his dedication to uh, Carcosa would have been a, a big problem until they received bits of the green sun, the kryptonite that uh, Casilda, whose uh, color is green, possibly supplied to them, and they uh, put him in there. And, of course, it's uh, bad news if uh, evil Carcosan Superman gets out of the sarcophagus uh, in the present day as well. It is, in fact, yes. I feel like there's any number of possibilities that you could deal once you start thinking about, you know, the lead-lined fellow not being a vampire or a magician or a Carcosan artist. I, I think, yeah, a superhero of some sort is, is the next step down. And the notion that Le Surome is pinned down there and, you know, because Surome is great, but he can't turn to mist and flow out through an endoscope. So he has to use his super hypnosis on people and get them to do his bidding and possibly even uh, start a fire in uh, this is normal now times in Notre Dame. And all of this is by way of, getting someone to break him out. And it's right now that during the, the year of the incessant superheroes has all been uh, Le Surome attempting to bend art to allow his Carcosan energies to flourish. Right. But at the risk of, you know, being so clever that we leave out the obvious things, could also be the king in yellow, could be Casilda, could be Camilla. Mm -hmm. uh, again, to repeat, it's whoever your big bad is in the pair sequence who comes back 
in This Is Normal Now. And uh, having circled back, it's time for us to escape the sarcophagus of this segment for uh, probably a not-at-all sarcophagus-y segment waiting on the other side. Delta Green Iconoclast, a campaign of horrors modern and ancient, brings a team of agents to a scene of terrors all too real. Mosul in 2016, held by the self-styled Islamic State in a reign of depraved brutality. From a small base at the Kirkuk airfield, the agents must research the horrors to come and prepare for a harrowing infiltration. ISIL fighters destroy mysterious artifacts. A Delta Green veteran goes rogue. Hidden myths permeate the Battle of Mosul. A demon god beckoned by a bloodthirsty cult. Plus terrifying supplementary material. Rules and guidelines for spying, crime, and backroom deals. New rituals. New tomes. And the dreadful details of a threat to suit all the evils of humanity. Available now in PDF. Or pre-order your glistening hardback slated for October release. It's time once more to wend our way up the creepity cobweb stairs. Uh, we're going to stop on the landing. We're going to wave at the uh, fire salamander in his portrait up on the wall. He's going to smile at us as usual. And then we're going to head on into the Edwardian parlor of the consulting occultist, where this time around we drop the pretense and here's Ken in his library because beloved Patreon backer Aaron Sapp says, I would like to hear about the tarot decks Ken has. Ken? Well, um, no one wants to hear that much about the tarot decks Ken has. I have 36 tarot decks, and that is more than we're going to get through in this segment, and more than probably anyone wants to get through. A lot of them are very sort of ridiculous, boring tarot decks that I picked up during my Nephilim era, when I was line developer for that game, and picked up a lot of tarot as research for that. Some of it is just sort of fun nerd culture tarot, so I've got a Mage the Ascension tarot, Vertigo Comics Tarot, the Ravenloft Taroka deck, Latero Amber, which is good fun for your Zelazny fans. I've got an H.R. Geiger Tarot. I've got tarots for Arthurian Myth, for Voodoo, uh, the New Orleans Voodoo Tarot, and a tarot of the Orishas, and then the Silicon Valley Tarot that Steve Jackson Games published. So all of those are on the shelf. I'm happy to own them all, but none of them, I think, necessarily need any more explication than they just got. So, so the classic, yeah. the iconic one, is the Rider Waite Tarot by A.E. Waite and Pamela Coleman-Smith. We've talked about her uh, on a previous segment. Is there anything more to say about that other than it is the classic? Uh, yeah, I mean, it, the thing to say about it is that it is the classic. It is still the best. Waite and Smith's partnership produced something greater than the sum of its parts. It's inspired virtually every tarot to come after. It's still the best. It's still the one that works the best in the sense of inspires me the most when I use it in games or in art or just screwing around. I've always loved it. It was my first tarot. My dad had a set that was a very big, arty set. My current writer weight is sort of small and crummy looking. It's the size of a regular deck of cards rather than the big sized tarot. I mean, it's 78 of them, but it's 78 little regular cards, but it's, uh, it's seen hard use and a uh, great love. I believe that Aaron Sapp might've been inspired by my pinnacle awarded to the pulp tarot by Todd Alcott, which I picked up from his, uh, Etsy site. It's super out of print all the time. So Pay attention, see if you can get it. But right, he he sells out every print yeah, run. Yeah, every, every every print run. Uh, what this is is it's a 
series of illustrations. Every card is an illustration. And, and they're all drawn from a, a trove of public domain or questionable uh, license, <laughs> reused, repurposes, yeah. pulp and paperback covers and, and movie illustrations. And it's, and it's not simply reused the cover. What he does is he's taken all of these covers and broken them down into elements. So they're a collage of images from all of those sources that uh, you just said. And he builds like a hand from one and a head from another and a torso from a third and a backdrop from a fourth and a feet from the last and puts a sword in from some other place. And suddenly you've got a, a figure and it really is a magnificent job of transposing or translating the medieval mythology, the medieval fantasy mythology of the writer weight deck into 20th and 21st century mythology, which is the sort of pulp adventure genre. And it is, you know, truly beautiful and magnificent. I recommend everyone go to his page. You can certainly see him there. And he, he also does a whole series of images of whether they're paperback covers or albums or whatever that are tributes to classic songs by famous rock artists. Exactly. Well. Yeah, that's his other field. So he's 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 definitely part of the scene. He's not sort of mocking it or, or belittling it. This is a, comes from the same place of love and maybe even mystic understanding that Waite and uh, Pamela Coleman-Smith had. Right. And now, speaking of using uh, art that's definitely in the public domain, we come to the William Blake Tarot of the Creative Imagination by Ed Buren uh, using the art of William Blake. Yeah. Uh, this is, uh, again, some of it is he's touched it up a little bit to make it properly tarot-y, but by and large, it's just straight up Blake illustrations that he's found and if you can identify where they're from, good for you, because Ed Buren's not going to tell you, but it's mostly just straight up Blake art that he has uh, cycled through and used as the images for a full on 78 card tarot. The suits are uh, science, painting, poetry, and music, as opposed to the standard suits that you're used to in a tarot. And the, the messages, the, the interpretive meanings are are on them so that you can do that without having to follow through to the original tarot meanings. And then the major arcana are sort of specially done. So temperance becomes forgiveness. Uh, the world becomes liberty, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There's lots of different. So they reflect a Blakeian worldview. Yeah, exactly. They have, they're very Blakeian sensibility. I have used them mostly in games that already had a Blake component as divination within the game. The characters in one of them were actually hunting for the Blake tarot that was in that game done by William Blake. And in another game, they simply knew that Blake's energies were strong and they would use the tarot to figure out what was going on. So a lot of it is just, I've written into the sides, which Blakeian giants or eons or figures, Zoas, each of the face cards is so that I know, Oh, that's Bromion. That means Bromion is going to come into play. So a little bit of it is by Ed Byrne and William Blake and Ken, but mostly it's just, Ed Byrne loving William Blake so much that he made a tarot deck of his stuff. And who doesn't love that? Right. Now we come to a, a set of historically resonant ones, starting uh, with the Sola Busca Tarot, which was first done in 1491 and was reprinted in 1995. Yeah, there's not a lot to say about that. It's one of the first and earliest tarots. It is the earliest, in fact, complete tarot. You may know about the Visconti Sforza Tarot, which is the older tarot than that. But the Visconti Sforza isn't complete. We don't have all what all the cards look like. People have guesstimated them, and you can buy a Visconti Sforza deck, and good for you. The Sola Busca is also the one that uh, Tim Powers uses in The Last Call, 
as the uh, magic tarot deck for his characters there. So that is what drove me to buy my own solo Busca deck. And it's, it's gorgeous and weird looking and doesn't quite look like the tarot you're familiar with. Like the Rider Waite, it does illustrate each of the minor arcana. It doesn't just have four swords. It has weird stuff going on with four swords in it. And that people speculate because it went on display at the British Museum that Pamela Coleman Smith may have seen it. And that is what drew her to suggest that all of the minor arcana also be illustrated. So there's a possible tie in there. Right. If you think that tarot gets more magic by being designed by a terrible person, <laughs> Alistair Crowley uh, with Lady Frida Harris did the Thoth tarot deck. And the Thoth deck, I feel like if you're any kind of a weird goth kid, you have to have owned this. I certainly did when I was just a weird kid. And it's Crowley saying, oh, your Rider weight tarot is too tame. I'm going to make the... <laughs> Which We knew that before yeah, you said it. But. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make the, the uh, Edgelord tarot. Yeah. And um, it's beautiful. It's uh, very present. I mean, the say what you want about Crowley. He had an aesthetic, to paraphrase Big Lebowski. But the Thoth deck is very much that. It's very uh, futurist, almost. Got, got a lot of big energy. Um, it was done in 1944. And it's, it's a gorgeous thing, and it's a, a fun insight into Crowley's mind. Other than swapping strength and justice, he doesn't actually do a lot to the tarot per se, but I think it's worth owning, and uh, Crowley certainly gets none of the money now. So, ha-ha. <laughs> and, and many of these are published by U.S. Game Systems, which has a vast panoply of historical tarots that you can buy. You don't have to go hunting at all, and, you know, they've just banged them out like they bang them all out. Right. If you want uh, equally famous and less terrible occultists to uh, create a deck for you, you've got S.L. McGregor Mathers and Moina Bergson Mathers' Golden Dawn Tarot as organized by uh, other occultists, Israel Regardi and Robert Wang. Yeah. And to what extent Regardi and Wang are actually replicating the Mathers' designs, I suppose, is how... Honest and forthright, do you think Israel Regardi is when he reveals all the secrets of the Golden Dawn? If you say mostly, then that's how good this is. It's pretty. It's uh, got that sort of twee quality that you associate with the mid-Victorians that uh, the Matherses were. The individual minor arcana are not illustrated except to show, you know, the four swords will be near a heart or something. It's not the full scene that uh, Rider Waite has. So... In that level, it's a little bit of a step back from the Rider Waite, but it's certainly a beautiful and evocative. And again, if it's at all like the Mathers Tarot, it's what A.E. Waite and Crowley would have looked at before designing their own tarot decks. So even if, if you don't buy the full Golden Dawnness of it, it's got some value as a evolution of tarot design. We're going to move back into cultural mashups. With the Wonderland Tarot deck, uh, Christopher Abbey and Margani Abbey have taken the classic illustrations of Sir John Tenniel and uh, terrified them. Exactly. And this deck I bought relatively early in my tarot collecting period. And for a long old time, and maybe even still, it was one of my favorite examples of taking the piss out of the tarot. If you get into this sort of microculture, you realize there's a lot of people who take the tarot really seriously. And... It's good fun to see it not being taken so seriously. So the suits are the pepper mills, the hats, the oysters, and the flamingos. And as you might expect, the, you know, individual arcana are 
they're, they're the same arcana, but they're illustrated with various John Tenniel characters, various Wonderland characters. So the strength is the lion and the unicorn, just like you'd expect. The uh, judgment is the white rabbit. The empress is a sheep knitting. So there's lots of good fun. The devil's the jabberwock. Who doesn't love that? So it's it does for me what the best pop culture tarots do, which is to sort of say tarot is just a almost a reticule or a gradical that you that you look at other stuff through. It doesn't have its own specific magic power. Now, admittedly, you look at the Rider Waite tar- tarot deck long enough, or the uh, even the Crowley one, the Thoth deck, you get a little magic power. Solabuska can definitely affect you if you let it, but some of that is the if you let it equation, and Wonderland makes a great antidote to that kind of uh, woo, in my experience. Next, we've got one that has sort of a, I guess, a, a UFO slash SF bent to it. Contact Cards by Kim Carlsberg and Daryl Anka. Yeah, this is a tarot, which is what you call a tarot that isn't a proper tarot with 78 cards, major and minor arcana. This is a 60-card tarot. It has five suits of 12 cards each. The suits are aliens, ships, stars, planets, and crop circles. I don't think that anyone would call this a particularly attractive set, but what it is is it's very evocative of that sort of simple-minded UFO cultism, and I feel like it would be just the thing to drop into a Moondust Men or a Fall of Delta Green game where you're dealing with those kinds of folks and you can either uncover the true horror behind it or otherwise use it as a doorway into an aesthetic. Because that's what it is. It's very much part of the 90s UFO craze. I can't really, you know, say that it even does a really good job of, you know, picking its aliens or whatever, but it's the sort of magpie mind that is drawn to that sort of thing. And, you know, I picked it up I think relatively cheap. It's from the fine occult publishers, Baron company. And uh, I'm certainly, I'm gladder to have that than I would be just to have a relatively boring X-Files tarot or whatever. I think it, you know, someone thought about it and right. they and may have thought it, it wrong. It sounds authentically kitschy. Exactly. Right. It's authentic kitsch as opposed to phony kitsch. And I think that's something that's wonderful and joyful when you encounter it in the wild anyway. And finally, we have a, a trio of decks that definitely are pitched to the interests of podcast listeners mm-hmm. are, our mythos-themed one, starting with the Book of Azathoth Tarot by Nemo. Yeah, this is almost Nemo, uh, the artist. Uh, that's their pseudonym. I don't know anything else about them. Basically just takes the Rider Waite deck and redraws it Cthulhu-y. They're all got the same names. They've basically got the same designs, but everything is creepy and, and weird-looking. It's printed in yellow on black, so it would also work for your King in Yellow Tarot a little bit. And that's just it, what it is. And you have to sort of like the Nemo art or the the sort of implication of it, but it's not going to hold your hand and say, this is Cthulhu. It's just going to say, oh, look at that. There's tentacles in the background of that Panicles card. I wonder what that's about. And now we have Secrets of the Necronomicon Tarot by Donald Tyson and Ann Stokes. And this one will absolutely hold your hand. There's a very lengthy booklet in it by Donald Tyson. Donald Tyson is a professional occultist. He uh, did a credible translation of Agrippa that I own. And has also published a lot of nonsense about Abdul Alhazred, including novels about his life and a biography and written sort of Lovecraftian stuff of various sorts. This is his tarot, which is straight up got, oh, Nirlathotep is the magician. Look at that. Ithakwa is the hermit. Look at that. Cthulhu is the devil. Look at that. And they're labeled. And then normally uh, the tarot, or since, wait, the tarot has been the... Passage to wisdom of the querent, right? That the, you begin it at the two and you move up and you achieve the ace. 
and this is his Alhazredic journey of discovery. So his character moves through various mystic path workings. So it's more occult than even the Rider Waite tarot, and it's definitely a hand-holdy Lovecraft thing. Very thick. Uh, it's not the standard little tiny pamphlet that says, here's how to interpret cards. Donald Tyson gives you money for value, or value for money. Now, now this raises all sorts of questions, though, because if the Major Arcana are cosmically indifferent deities, A, why do they care enough about you to uh, give you accurate information? And if they're all Cthulhu... You know, the typical arcana reflect a range of experiences of life from the good to the bad, but I don't think it's really a Cthulhu deck unless it's going to tell you that something terrible is going to happen to you every single time you consult it. It's like, you're doomed, you're nothing, you're speck, you're an insect. That's really the only things that a Cthulhu deck ought to be telling you. And in fairness, that's pretty much all this does tell you if you look at it. I think that Tyson does a little bit of that Llewellyn-y... No, everything can be a window onto the good world type stuff. But, you know, when the lovers are a deep one marrying a lady, that's not good. <laughs> it's just a bad scene. Yes. When a deep one and a, and a lady love each other very much, they get on a tarot card. Very, very much. Exactly. So I guess what you'd have to do is take the Care Bears tarot and, like, intershuffle it so that right. you would balance the light and dark back together. Mm-hmm. And I've done a, a Cthulhu tarot that has not ever been printed. If you go to my Dubious Shards book, I, you know, have laid out, you know, my notion of a Cthulhu tarot. But it is legitimately a cursed object, and nothing good can happen when you use it. That's what the rules indicate to, to use right. it as well. And is that also true of our, our last item, the Cthulhu Dark Arts Tarot by Maxime Ledane and Fortifem, a.k.a. Adrian Heve and Jesse Debertes. The Cthulhu Dark Arts Tarot is, I think, the loveliest of those three. That's kind of why I saved it for the last. The art is is much better. The images are, again, more mythos-tainted than they are specifically the mythos. But, for example, the sun is an eclipsed sun behind what looks like maybe the, you know, Exum Priory, as opposed to <laughs> anything helpful. The only downside to the Cthulhu Dark Arts Tarot, and I can't really blame Fortifem, is that once more, you just illustrate the Minor Arcana, except for the face cards, with, you know, the Eight of Swords is eight weird-looking wavy swords. It's not a cool little scene like you get out of Rider Waite. So, the only, that's the only problem there. Well, that's how you save money with your art order for a tarot deck. Mm-hmm. The other thing is that what that means is that you have a relatively uh, a spooky, but not necessarily inherently doomed bunch of readings from the Cthulhu Dark Arts Tarot, weirdly given its name. But I think certainly as a visual thing, it's the best of the of the three that I own. Although I don't want to, don't sleep on the Book of Azathoth Tarot. It's, it's lovely. And again, Donald Tyson will explain your arm off about how he gets his Necronomicon Tarot to work. So right. if you like that, I, I don't regret owning that. Well, I regret being in a life where I'm owning that. But given that I'm me, I don't regret owning it. <laughs> <laughs> Within the existing parameters, you right. don't regret it. Every now and again, I think, was this inevitable? Did I have to do this? Yes. And finally, you have a, a book that you would like to mention. Yes. The book is Tarot and Tequila by David A. Ross. The card art is by Carolina Martinez. I don't know if you can buy just the deck of this. I would hope so, because the art is... Very fun and exciting. Lots of Cataveras and uh, other Day of the Dead sort of inspired design. It's full of cocktail recipes, mostly with tequila, which is great. I'm not a big tequila guy, but the book was really, you know, for what it was, it's from Simon & Schuster, so they must have had a print run of a million. But it was, you know, 
maybe 20 bucks for the book. And it, it's a perfectly good book of tequila recipes. And again, it's a full on dark humor, happy death tequila themed bunch of tarot art, which is the other thing that tarot does is that it gives you a framework on which to hang a set of images that you want to get out into the world. And I think that that its use as a artist's prompt is almost as significant and almost as cool as its use as a personal divinatory prompt. And that I think is why I have 36 tarot decks. And believe me, I am a piker in the world of tarot deck collecting. I'm sure that even people who listen to this show have got, you know, hundreds of tarot decks and are just mocking me right now as a tarot piker. Right. Well, I'm no cardomancer, but I predict that we've reached the end of this episode. But I also predict that there's another episode a mere week from today. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Ask for Gelm. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Support our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Keep this podcast's arcana major by joining such tarot backers as... David Mascari. Fred Kish. Andrea Coletta. Derek McMullen. And Jacob Borsma. Wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken Ken Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Celebrate avian brigandage with our latest design, Stormy Petrels of Crime. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time, and once again, we will talk about stuff.